Blood on the Tracks is a production of iHeartRadio and Double Elvis. Phil Spector was a musical genius, one of the most successful record producers of all time. He is now sitting behind bars serving a 19 years to life sentence for murder. This is his story, told by his so-called friends. This is Special Agent Paul Ramon with the Federal Bureau of Investigation, working case number 004-10-7419. Case subject is Spectre Philip Harvey. This information pertains to a period ending September 30th, 2002. Interview subject is Turner Izier Luster Jr., a.k.a. Ike. Interview number 0-51-966-666. Spirit Confessional, recall number 5, March 1st, 2005. Any black artist in America to make any tune that has to go to the top 10 on the R&B charts before the top 40 station will touch it. And River Deep Mountain High was not a black record. Don't want to make the top 10 on the R&B charts. That's why the top 40 radio station wouldn't play it. The black jockey said it was too white. The white jockey said it was too black. You hear what Phil said about River Deep Mountain High? This is a few years later after the record, like 1969, okay? He said, today, that song could have been a number one record. Today. Like a couple of years would have made any difference. He said when it came out, it was like his farewell. <laughs> Must have been one hell of a secret at farewell, okay? Because he never said nothing to none of us in the studio. And then he said, I was just saying goodbye, and I just want to go crazy for a few minutes. Four minutes on wax. That's all it was to him. He said, I got what I wanted out of him. Of course he did, man. Of course he got what he wanted out of it. The proof is there. And that put him in. An old lot on the tracks. feel like this whole thing is y'all want me to sell the man out. You want me to tell you all the dirty stuff, all the stuff to vilify him and all that, like he's some kind of boogeyman or some shit. And okay, sure, maybe the guy did some shit, okay? Maybe he made some mistakes and didn't always do right by everyone in the room. Look, takes one to know one, okay? Lord knows I made my share of mistakes. I didn't always do right by everyone. I overreacted. I lost my temper. And Phil did the same, man. I don't know that I would say we were friends, okay? But game recognizes game, man. It was for that reason. Phil was scared of me. He was terrified of me. Just ask Danny Davis. Go ask him, man. I'll wait. 
Danny Davis knew what was up. Anytime you are questioning what Phil tells you about this or that, just run it by Danny Davis. Now, Phil. Phil saw me and Tina play the big TNT show. That thing was like the Tammy show, right? But it was a movie and it had all kinds of people. White, black, whatever. Bo Diddley and Rach Halls. The Birds and Donovan. This is the night. It's the greatest lineup musical talent in show business. Phil was a producer or a musical director or some shit. And so we closed the show. Now let's go. Tina was wearing that funny hat. I told her not to wear that hat. Not that she always listened to me. Phil told everybody that Tina just blew him away. He said, now quote, I was just devastated by her. Now I said it before and I'll say it again. Tina was okay. There were better singers and better dancers. Whatever Tina is now couldn't hold a candle to whatever Tina was before. I listen to her now and I don't even recognize her, man. I loved her. I did love her, okay? I don't love her. I don't even like her anymore. Whatever she is now. But Phil just starts talking about Tina. Tina, Tina, Tina. Okay, fine. He sees this talent in Tina and thinks her destiny is on Ed Sullivan in Las Vegas. He wants to record Ike and Tina Turner, he says. But what that really means is that he wants Tina. What he doesn't tell everyone is that Ike Turner scares the shit out of him. I could tell it the first time I met him, man. Of course you did, man. He was probably scared to death when he saw me on the big TNT show, you know. Because I didn't flail around wildly like Tina. I stood there straight as a fucking arrow, man, and played my guitar. All business. Phil was standing as close as he could to me. Not too close, okay? <laughs> he didn't dare get too close. He's standing there in his tall shoes and his big hair. Most definitely a wig. Okay, again, takes one to know one, right? And I swear to God, I can see his little body tremble. So he comes to my house, tell me he wants Ike and Tina minus Ike, okay? He says that they're gonna make this number one record. It's gonna change everything. Tina will become the biggest star. Must have been one hell of a secret and farewell. But there was always a but. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to tell Tina what to do. He just couldn't stand the thought of having me involved. And shit, man, at least he knew enough to say it up front. He owned it to a certain degree, even though he would never come right out and say, I Turner scares me to death. He never said nothing, none of us in the studio. Whatever, man. I told him straight up, if you think you can make this incredible record with Tina on your own without me there, go for it. Show me what you can do, man. Today, that song could have been a number one record. But I made some demands of my own. I told Phil I wanted my name on that record, regardless of whether or not I played on it. I wanted my name before Tina's name. Like it always was. And I got it. There was too chicken shit to negotiate with that, okay? So Tina starts going to Phil's mansion in LA. That big one up on La Colina. 
They start rehearsing it. Phil's playing piano and having Tina go through the motions, and he's real strict. Like, I was real strict with my band. I let my review with a pistol in one hand and the other hand clenched real tight. I charged 10 bucks if one of the girls had a run in the stockings, 25 bucks if they laughed too damn loud. But as tough as I was with the band members, I also let Tina do her own thing. Sing the way she sang, man. Off stage may have been another story. Behind closed doors is always different, man. On the stage, I controlled the players at least, even if I couldn't control Tina. Nobody could control Tina. Plus, I stood behind Tina, watched her shake her ass in those tight miniskirts I bought for her. I convinced her to wear those. They got tighter and shorter as the years went on. I convinced her to start wearing a bra too. See, I had control of Tina until she hit that stage. And then she let loose. Now Phil Spector comes in and he wants to control Tina. He said when he came out, it was like his farewell. She would come back from those rehearsals at his mansion and tell me that she can't sing the song the way she wants to sing the song. She has to sing it the way Phil tells her to sing it. If she deviates, he stops her and they start over again. I just want to go crazy for a few No improvisation, no Tina being Tina, for better or for worse, you understand? Phil wanted Tina to be what Phil wanted Tina to be. And he'd get it too. I knew what he was doing. I knew how he did it. Like I said, man, game recognizes game. Phil sabotaged his own damn record, I swear to God. He told Tina, back when we started this whole River Deep Mountain High business, that it was gonna be the biggest song in the world, that she was gonna be the biggest star in the world because of the record, right? She would be the biggest because he made her the biggest, see? And it was great, man. I think River Deep Mountain High is as much a work of art as good vibrations, okay? The two should be talked about as the two best songs of 1966, no doubt. But Phil was the first to step in and drive the final nails in his coffin, at least here in the States. He took these full-page ads out in the trades, you know, in Billboard and Cashbox that just said, River Deep Mountain High, number one in England. Benedict Arnold was right. <laughs> he did that sort of thing when he felt that his ego had been disrespected, when in fact, it was really crushed. I mean, his ego was just crushed. He did it again when Lenny Bruce died, you know, took out that full page ad that said, Lenny Bruce was killed by an overdose of police. He just couldn't let shit slide and move on. This was his way of lashing out. Now, the song was huge in the UK. They loved it over there because they loved black American music. That's all the bands were playing over there. The Rolling Stones, the Beatles, 
And because they didn't put every song in a box, they didn't have to categorize it all and compartmentalize it the way they do here. The black jockey said it was too white. The white jockey said it was too black. The hierarchy of the charts here is insane. It has to go to the top 10 on the R&B charts for the top 40 station will touch The song was caught between a rock and a hard place and not even Phil Spector with all his power and his people and his ego could dislodge that fucker. The top 40 station wouldn't play. You know, he was riding high off all that stuff with the Righteous Brothers. You've lost that loving feeling and unchained melody. You've lost that loving feeling is what, uh, the most played song of all time? So his ego was pretty well inflated at that point. I just want to go crazy for a few minutes. And then River Deep Mountain High doesn't even make it past 88 on the US charts. Phil got depressed. He thought he had it, had the golden touch. And then he lost it again. He went back to his mansion, back into his bedroom. Dude didn't do all that well with failure, you know. Maybe I should have seen it coming. When we first set foot in that studio, in Gold Star, that little studio in Hollywood, when we first walked through that door, off the alleyway, Tina nearly had a heart attack. <laughs> she walked in the door and immediately was just like, hell no. It was March, 1966. We walked in and there was like 20 or 30 people in there. It wasn't just a band, man, it was a fucking symphony. Two guitarists, two drummers, a damn choir of singers, white players, black players, Earl Parma and Carol Kay and Leon Russell and Barney Kessel. The whole wrecking crew, that's what they called those cats. Shit. Phil kept them all in line just about as well as me. I say just about, man. Because I could look at a man and he changed the way he was playing. In a second. Phil had to tell them repeatedly what he wanted. Or I need a bass drum hit there. Ba 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 ba. Then it wasn't just the wrecking crew musicians hanging around. Brian Wilson was there with Rodney Bergenheimer. Mick Jagger was there with Jack Nietzsche. And uh, 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 Dennis Hopper was there too. Tina was completely unprepared for the people and the pressure. I mean, we both were, but she just froze up. She looked at me and told me she couldn't do it. She couldn't perform with all these people. She wasn't confident enough to deliver in front of all these people. Well, that's when I stepped in. I told Phil that Tina couldn't you know, I just placed my chest right up against his, gotten his face a little closer than he was comfortable with. I said, Tina ain't doing it this way, Jack. You know, you call Phil a different name like that and it just threw him off. I said, listen up, Jack. And he just shot up to attention. He listened. <laughs> he would pick up an apple core from the ashtray in the room and eat it while he nodded his head. Was that a power move? I don't know, man. I think it was just disgusting. I told him I was taking Tina outside. And when he wanted to trim the fat and get his shit under control, we'd be back to cut the track. But when we did go back, Bill had dialed back the zoo. One more, one more time. A little bit faster. Just a little bit. Tina sang like a motherfucker, man. Take after take. She just gave it everything she had. 
She put so much into that, she nearly passed out, man. The sweat was just dripping. It was on the edge of her lips, her eyelids hanging down the tip of her nose. Hold it, hold it, sorry, sorry. Frankie Cat got a little carried away there. That room was small and hot and stuffy, and this tune was a pressure cooker, you dig? She got so hot in there that she took off her damn blouse. Stripped right down to her bra in the middle of Gold Star. She asked if anyone would mind and before she heard a reply, she had pulled it off over her head. All the eyes in that room were simultaneously staring at her and trying to look away. You know, like, should we? Shouldn't we? She put a lot into that performance. The rehearsals at Phil's mansion, the session in the studio, she put her all into it, man. And however I felt about being swept aside at the start of it all, it didn't matter if this thing was gonna vault us into the stratosphere. We'd be finer than a frog hair split four ways, you see? And then, when it was obvious that it wasn't going to be what Phil thought it was going to be, he just lost interest. Disappeared. He was no longer our advocate. He distanced himself. Must have been one hell of a secret and farewell. It was the same shit he pulled with the Righteous Brothers and the Ronettes before them. He said it was all calculated, which you know he was saying just so he could save face and not look like a complete idiot. And then he said, I was just saying goodbye. I don't know, man. I wouldn't say he was a complete idiot, but he certainly swam those waters between idiocy and genius. I've done some laps in there, okay? They're deep waters, and long, too. There's lots of places a man can get lost in there, on this shore or that. He had most certainly washed up on the shore. Couldn't tell you where it was. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. That taxi thing was years later, man. Years later. Phil invited me to come to a party he was throwing at a bowling alley in Montrose, just a little north of Pasadena, a quick blip up the 210. I'm gonna guess this is around uh, 2002. He had thrown a party there for his daughter a year earlier when she was graduating high school, I believe it was, and enjoyed getting back out in the public that he decided to make it an annual shindig. I thought, hell man, if nothing else, maybe there'll be some ass I could chase around for an hour or two. Phil was just balls deep in regrets, I think. (laughs) He wished he had made this record or didn't make that one. Wished he had married this girl and not that one. Like I said before, I could relate, okay? Shit, man, I was arrested something like 12, 13 times for drugs. Arrested even when the quote-unquote drugs I was carrying was just baking soda, man. I did time. Paid debts and repaid debts. I've been married ten times. At least. When it came to regrets and life choices, <laughs> well, me and Phil were simpatical. You know what I'm saying? When Tina and I first split up in the 70s, I took up a relationship with cocaine that lasted for years. Someone told me that shit would make your dick hard for hours, and that's all I needed to hear. My dick was hard for years, man. (laughs) 
Oh, what can I say? I like Coke, man. Who doesn't like Coke? Uh, so what do I know? Maybe Phil had some old Rolodex filled with other guys who had other regrets. I hadn't talked to him much in a while. No one had talked to him all that much. Like a couple of years would have made any difference. But he called me up and told me to come out to Montrose and we'd catch up. He told me he'd send a car to pick me up. Some nice stretch job. I waited and waited. Nothing. No stretch job. So I called him back and I got his secretary. She told me to take a cab and Phil would reimburse me when I got there. Okay, fine. So I take the cab. We pull up at the place in Montrose and tell the driver, hang tight, someone will come out to pay you. Well, almost an hour later, I'm inside enjoying myself, okay? And I find out that the driver is still sitting outside waiting to get paid. I say, hey, Phil, I'm not trying to be ungrateful here, but the cabbie is idling outside and you said you would foot the bill. Okay? I mean, some days it was hard for me to string together a couple of bucks, and this was one of those days. And Phil says, yeah, 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 man. I'll settle up with the guy. Just enjoy yourself. I'm thinking, okay, when exactly are you going to settle up with him? And he turns around and talks to someone else. I'm thinking, okay, this guy's not getting paid by Phil Spector. Next thing I know, I'm introducing a friend of mine to Phil. Someone I brought with me to the party. And Phil is just an asshole, man. He doesn't give a shit. You know, like big fucking whoop de doo. Oh, he's all wax. That's all it was to him. God damn, man. Phil may have wanted to get out and mingle with the public again, but I don't know that he was ready. For sure he wasn't ready. He was rusty. Do you hear what Phil said about Riverdale? So I'm done. I leave the party, get back in the cab that's been sitting there for almost two hours at this point. I get back home and make a call to borrow money to pay for the fare. I pay the driver with borrowed money. I was so out of my mind angry at this point, man. Angry about it all. The money, the disrespect. He said, I got what I wanted out of him. So then I make another call. This time to Phil. I get the machine and I say, You know I'm never the kind to kiss ass and I never will be. You need to take a long look at yourself. I think you're a lonely man, and I feel really sorry for you. I took that car over there, I did it at your request, and then I find myself in an embarrassing position. You'll never guess what happens next. I get no return phone call, no personal visit, but the very next day, there's a knock on my door. I open it, and it's a delivery. Two dozen roses, a check from Phil made out to me for two grand, and a note that just says, thank you for coming. And then he said, I was just saying goodbye. No apology, no explanation. All these years later, man, his true colors are there still. He's still terrified of me. He pulled that shit with the cab at the party to fuck with me. To fuck with me in front of a bowling alley full of friends and ass kisses. He knew he was safe there. And then he secretly sends me that care package at my house. You know, because he was too afraid to live on my bad side. Must have been one hell of a secret farewell. I did all that for him, man. Brought him Tina. Let him record Tina the way he wanted to record Tina. Stepped aside to let him do his thing. And he said, today, that song could have been a number one record. He made promises that he couldn't keep. 
And this is what I got for it, okay? An insult, some flowers, a check, and one measly sentence. And that man was the last time I saw Phil Spector. March 1980, Inglewood, California. The LA narcotics agents called it the Taj Mahal because it was grandiose, extravagant, palatial. One of Southern California's great wonders, the house that Coke built. Ike Turner called it Bullock Sound, which phonetically called to mind Anna Mae Bullock, AKA Tina Turner, AKA Proud Mary, the singer he discovered, partnered with, and subsequently humiliated and abused behind closed doors. But now, Tina was long gone. She had bailed years ago, fleeing Ike in Dallas with nothing but the bloody clothes on her back. And with Tina gone, Ike's music suffered. In place of music, he turned to drugs, and drugs kept him very busy. So busy that he left a trail of cocaine behind him wherever he went. The LAPD kept an eye on Ike every time he came and went from the Taj Mahal. A guitar player with a bad reputation who recorded with Phil Spector, toured with the Rolling Stones, and famously had a hand in the first ever rock and roll song, using his studio complex as ground zero for drug dealing and drug doing. On this day in March, the LA Narcs brought the SWAT team with them. They went in through the front door. The first thing they found was a live hand grenade. The next thing they found was Ike on his knees next to the toilet, empty baggies on the floor, the toilet still running, and seven grams of cocaine that he'd yet to flush. Ike got 30 days in jail and three years probation. The following year, someone poured a flammable liquid down the hallways of the Taj Mahal and lit a match. A few months later, shots rang out in the middle of the day on Ike's front lawn. Ike claimed that the mailman had kicked his dog, and so he pulled the piece from the back of his pants and immediately shot him. Ike was cleared in court of the assault charge but more run-ins with the police followed. Arrests for possession, conspiracy to sell, and concealed weapons were common for Ike in the 1980s. On May 20th, 1989, Phil Spector opened his copy of the Los Angeles Times in the dark, cold comfort of his La Colina mansion and wasn't all that surprised at the first headline that caught his eyes. Ike Turner, arrested on cocaine charges. The article explained that cops had pulled Ike over in West Hollywood where he was driving under the influence of cocaine and unloaded 38 revolver and a pile of rock cocaine sat on the seat next to him. It wasn't the first time cops had busted Ike in West Hollywood. Spectre knew all about Ike's troubles. He knew a trouble man when he saw one. He never fully trusted Ike. He and Ike were too similar. He knew the games that Ike played, the manipulations, the way he used and abused those closest to him. Spectre knew all about Ike's troubles and Ike's games because they were his troubles and his games too. Phil Spectre folded up the paper and placed it on the coffee table. 
He focused his attention back to the stereo, which was playing I'm Your Man, the new album by Leonard Cohen. He turned the volume up. The record was full of synthesizers, and for Spectre's taste, it was too sterile and modern sounding. It made a spectacle of Leonard's voice. His poetry was caught up in machines. It didn't have the warmth and the feeling that a Leonard Cohen record deserved. Spectre had given Leonard what he deserved just a decade before. At least he thought so. Even if the world didn't agree. Even if the world wanted something more modern than Spectre could deliver. Spectre saw a kindred spirit in Leonard. Someone to get loose with. Someone to get crazy with. At the time, in 1977, Phil Spectre was hoping that Leonard Cohen felt the same way. If he didn't, it's no worry. Phil Spector had a plan to keep Leonard Cohen loose, crazy, and by his side for as long as he wanted. The proof would be there, in the pudding, in the blood, on the tracks. This episode of Blood on the Tracks is brought to you by 27 Club, a podcast that I host on musicians who died at the age of 27. Season 2 featuring Jim Morrison is now available, as is Season 1 with 12 episodes featuring Jimi Hendrix. Subscribe to the 27 Club on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, this episode was also brought to you by Disgraceland, the award-winning music and true crime podcast also hosted by yours truly. Episodes on the Rolling Stones, Jerry Lewis, Cardi B, The Grateful Dead, Jay-Z, Prince, and many, many more are all waiting for you right now. Just search Disgraceland on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, this episode of Blood on the Tracks was written by Zeth Lundy and scored and mixed by Matt Bowden. Hosted by me, Jake Brennan. Additional music and score elements by Ryan Spraker and Henry Renan. This episode featured Jeffrey Alkins as Ike Turner. Blood on the Tracks is produced by myself for Double Elvis in partnership with iHeartRadio. Sources for this episode are available at doubleelvis.com on the Blood on the Tracks series page. If you like what you hear, please be sure to subscribe to Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio app, wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to win a free Blood on the Tracks poster designed by Nate Gonzalez, then leave a review for Blood on the Tracks on Apple Podcasts. You can hashtag Blood on the Tracks on social media, leave your review there, and we'll pick two winners each week and announce them on the Double Elvis Instagram page. That's at Double Elvis. Go ahead and give that a follow. All right, as always, you can find me blabbing about other crazy rock stars on Disgraceland and 27 Club, and you can talk to me per usual on Instagram and Twitter at DisgracelandPod. Rock and roll. Oh, dang it.